Good morning, everybody. Let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, um, Lord, we thank you so much uh, for this day. We thank you so much for this Lord's Day, this opportunity to come here together and spend time together studying your word. God, I pray that your spirit would help us and I pray that you would give us your wisdom and and help us to... uh, If we're doubting, have a stronger confidence in your word. And if we're struggling, to be encouraged. And uh, Lord, help us to be stirred up to go and worship you together and to keep on enjoying this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning's Sunday School lesson is a little bit different because it's a break from what Prashant and John have been doing. First Prashant and then John, uh, because John is away somewhere this week. I I don't actually know where he went, but... He's not here. So um, what this morning's lesson is going to consist of is it's going to be an overview of the whole book of Exodus in one um, lesson. And so basically the whole point is to remind us of the big picture because we've been going in the evenings through Exodus and we've been going to individual sections of the of the text and looking at little more focused points and trying to connect those to the Bible as a whole, trying to go to the New Testament with it. And so in this long of a series, it's good to take a break every once in a while and just go, okay, well, what's the big point? What's the big picture? And so it also might encourage some of you guys to actually go and listen to those sermons if you haven't heard them yet. Um, And so, yeah, it's a little bit different than what we've been doing about the Baptist Catechism. But the book of Exodus, as some of you may know, is very rich in doctrine. It's very rich in the same types of things we've been talking about in the catechism. So those questions we've been going through have had to do with um, God as the first and chiefest being. It's had to do with the word and the law of God. It's had to do with the fact that there is one true and triune God. And it has to do with his attributes and things of that nature, right? And the book of Exodus um, brings out many of those things. In fact, I think if you go and look in a systematic theology book or in a catechism, you're often going to see citations from Exodus to prove God is like this or um, the word of God is like this or the law of God is like this. And so it's not totally disconnected at all. And so um, let's dive into the lesson now. Um, The message of the book of Exodus is all about God's sovereign redemption of his chosen people for his own glory, which all points to the greater exodus in Jesus Christ. Okay, four things we're going to go through today. Um, Can everybody see that well enough? Okay, so yeah, the message of exodus is all about, then we start with God's sovereign redemption. God's sovereign redemption. And so we, um, as I'm going through this, I'm going to bring out some things in the book, uh, some things that we've noticed Um, throughout the book of Exodus in order to show examples for each of these four sections. And honestly, I'm probably going to miss a few things. So if anyone feels like they want to add something in for each of those four, there's a lot there. Just feel free to pipe up and just uh, contribute something into um, proving each of these four things as you've been listening to the sermons and you've been reading the book of Exodus and things like that. So... Yeah, the book of Exodus is about God's sovereign redemption, first of all. And so um, his redemption as what sovereign really means is his redemption as the supreme ruler, the one who's in control of all things. So I had a professor, one of my professors at RTS, 
And he told me that to say a book's theme is about the sovereignty of God is kind of a lame cop-out. <laughs> because basically the whole Bible is about that. <laughs> and I actually tend to agree with him mostly. Except the problem with Exodus is that it really is one of the themes of Exodus. It's, it's, it's not a cop-out at all because Exodus really, you could say, is a paradigm type of book. Um, it's a book that kind of sets a pattern or a model or a foundation for the whole narrative of the whole Bible. And so to say that it's about God's sovereign redemption is not a, a lame cop-out. It's actually a, or a um, shortcut, I guess, or an easy out. It's actually really in there. And so, um, yeah, the message of Exodus is actually, I think if you really break it down, if you look at this board, the message of Exodus really is the message of the whole Bible. If you think about it, it's like, okay, God's sovereign redemption of his chosen people for his own glory and through Jesus Christ. So really it is, in some sense, a summary of the message of the whole scripture. And um, yeah, so a few books um, in the Bible are going to constantly and consistently and fully illustrate the fact that God is in control. The fact that he's working things out. The fact that he is uh, working all things to the good of his people quite as much as Exodus will. And so this, this comes out early on. This comes out in Moses' rescue um, in the God's care for bringing Moses out of destruction, out of the river, as we saw early on in the series. Um, it, show, it shows in the fact that uh, the whole Exodus event, I mean, you can't think of the Exodus event of them passing through the sea without thinking of them being redeemed, being saved. This shows through the wilderness wandering, God's sovereign uh, provision for them, care for them, his, uh, his ability to bring them through dire straits time after time. And this even shows in the instructions for how God wanted to be worshipped. He gives very specific instructions and he sovereignly has provided for them and helped them in order to fulfill those demands and to fulfill those instructions. And so, um, yeah, this, this sovereignty aspect is showed very clearly also in the fact that um, God is contrasted throughout Exodus with Pharaoh, right? And Pharaoh was a, was a god. Pharaoh was a, a sovereign man. Everyone thought of him as the sovereign. But God shows that he's supreme over Pharaoh throughout the book of Exodus. And so there's no man on earth that can resist God is what the point of that is. And God also shows in the book of Exodus that he is sovereign in the face of the most powerful nation on earth. So Egypt was the most powerful nation with the most powerful man as their leader. <clears throat> man, God, I guess you could call him. And this nation of Egypt, they had many false gods. And so when uh, God comes and he sovereignly destroys Egypt, what he's really saying is not only am I above that a man who's their leader, not only am I above that nation that's so powerful, but I'm also sovereign over all of their uh, gods, all of their so-called powerful gods that they would worship. <clears throat> and so the nations and their gods are closely tied together. And so now I'm going to ask a question. Does anyone remember one of the ways in the book of Exodus how God shows his dominion over Egypt's gods? Not Hal, but Hal can answer it later if it, or Prashant or somebody. How is, what's one of the ways that God shows that he's sovereign over Egypt's gods? Yeah, the plagues. Good, Catherine. So it's like when each of those plagues takes place, we as um, 
as people in North America or people who don't understand their gods and their traditions, we don't understand that God is literally saying, no, when I send frogs, I'm destroying your God of frogs. When I, uh, when I make it dark over you guys in the middle of the day, then I'm actually destroying your God, Ra, who's the God of the sun, who's the God of light. So in each of those, um, God shows himself to be sovereign and to have dominion over an Egyptian God. And so God shows that he lastly is also the supreme power or the sovereign over all the created order, all of the nature and all of the miracles that he does um, when, he, when, he's, when he's ruling over creation and over nature and over the world. Every single time he does one of those miracles, he's proving I have control over the rain and the hail and the, and the storms and I have control over the seas and I am the sovereign one who created those things and also has the ability to control those. So that's a lot to take in, but that's probably how a lot of this is going to be because I'm trying to cover the whole book of Exodus in one sitting. But um, so far, a lot of the emphasis has been on the sovereign aspect, the fact that he's a supreme ruler and he's in control of all things. Now let's switch over to the redemption aspect, sovereign redemption, right? Sovereign redemption. So what we see in Exodus is that since the fall, um, God's sovereign redemption needs to take place through a specific role, a specific person. And that role is that of a mediator. And so we learn in Exodus that Moses serves as an image, which we're going to go deeper into later when we look at this part, how all of it points to Jesus. But Moses actually serves as a mediator, which points us to, oh, well, what is our full, what is our solution to the big problems that we face? And that in Moses is fulfilled, for instance, Moses leads the people and he's the one who's holding the rod. He's the one who's fighting for them. Moses leads the people through the waters. It says in, in Exodus that Moses speaks to Pharaoh on behalf of God. That's him representing Israel before Pharaoh. It also says that Moses speaks to God on behalf of the people. Right. So that's him being that middleman, that mediator between God and man. It also says that Moses speaks to the people from God. So he's even bringing messages and laws and words from God to the people as their prophet and as their mediator. It also says that Moses actually enters into the presence of God on behalf of the people. Right? You can already see how rich this imagery is of a mediator and a future coming mediator. Moses even talks about in other places that there's going to be a day when there's going to be a prophet, a mediator, a person who's going to be even greater than he. What else does he do? Moses climbs up the mountain of God for the people, right? As their mediator, as their leader. And so he serves as this image of a mediator of redemption, God's sovereign redemption. It's not just that God is this high God who's in control of everything. He also is providing them with a redeemer and a mediator. And in Moses, we see a picture of that. Now, what else? Where else do we see this redemption aspect? Well, we see it also in the Passover, in all of this rich imagery, right? Remember the Passover when, um, when the Israelites had to kill a lamb and paint it on their doorpost in order to serve as, a, uh, as basically the marker that would mark out their houses so that the um, angel of death would not come and destroy them, right? And so the Passover then serves as this redemption imagery, as well. And not only that, throughout the whole book of Exodus, there's so much imagery and so many things that we see 
in, for instance, tonight, we're going to go through the tabernacle and through so many different aspects where we see the furniture and the sacrifices and the laws, all those things, they point to God needing to be the redemption of his people. It points to this redemption aspect that we need to understand in Exodus. And so God shows, lastly, his sovereign redemption because he saves his people. And as he saves his people at the very same time, he's busy judging the wicked. So he saves his people, lifts them up, carries them through the sea. But at the same time, he's drowning Egypt and he's drowning Pharaoh in the Red Sea, right? And so that, again, is an aspect of God's sovereignty and his redemption that we can take a lot of encouragement in, in a wicked world, in a sinful world, as those who've been redeemed, looking forward to a day one day when, when God lifts us up to glory, that we then we will have a world that's no longer filled with evil, no longer filled with wickedness, no longer filled with all of those types of things. So that's the first thing. The book of Exodus is about God's sovereign redemption, his sovereign redemption. And the second thing is the sovereign redemption of his chosen people. So that's the next step. So why is God so faithful and so kind and so loving towards these are these Israelites? Why is that? Well, it's because they're the descendants of those people who he made these rich and amazing promises to. So does anyone remember who were the promises made to that apply to the Israelites? That's why God is so um, affectionate towards them in that moment. Yeah, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So throughout Exodus, he's going to constantly remind them, I am faithful to you because I remember what I promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The fact that I have made this covenant, this chosen group of people that I'm going to be faithful to, that I'm going to show my sovereignty to, that I'm going to show my redemption to. So, let's ask this. He, at one point, says... That God says to the Israelites, he says, I hear your groaning, basically, in Egypt under the weight of slavery. And I what? He says he remembers something. What does he remember? So that's what he that's what actually draws him to start this whole exodus process in the whole in the first place. Does anyone anybody remember that? It's close to the beginning of Exodus. He says, I've heard your groaning and I've remembered the covenant. I've remembered the covenant. So when he hears them groaning under this heavy weight, this burden, God hears that and he remembers the covenant. He remembers and he is drawn because of his faithfulness to that promise. The fact that his word never fails and the fact that he's chosen these people because of his covenant. And so this here's another question. We've, we've talked about this in the sermons. Someone might remember this. So to who did God reveal that the people would be in captivity for 400 years? Anyone remember that? Joseph. Yeah, All right, Catherine. Uh, no, not Joseph. It, well, is it to Joseph? I don't think it's to Joseph. Yeah, it, like, no, it, sorry. It is definitely to Abraham. I was wondering if it's to Abraham and to Joseph, but I, I don't think it's to Joseph. Oh, yeah, the, the fact that they'll be in captivity. Yeah, okay, but basically, so when he's making the promise to Abraham, the covenant promise, the reason that these are his chosen people, God at one point, uh, he at one point uh, says to Abraham, there's going to come a time 
when these people who are your descendants are going to be in captivity in a foreign land for 400 years. So isn't that amazing that these chosen people, even ahead of time, in their word, in their tradition, would have had it said that they were going to be captive. It's not like any of this, again, this reflects back to the sovereignty aspect. None of this whole thing of them being in captivity and them being stuck in Egypt, none of this is a surprise to them whatsoever. None of it. None of it comes as a surprise to God. And if they knew what God had promised, it wouldn't have come to us as a surprise to them either. And so because of his covenant, we also know that God is patient with his people. So these people have been chosen. They're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so they're complaining constantly. We've seen that in the sermons too, right? They, they're constantly complaining. They're constantly backsliding. They're constantly uh, grumbling. But yet God stays patient with them. He does not immediately just turn his back on them and neglect them. No, he's very patient for them. And not only that, he actually provides for them. He gives them manna. He gives them quail. He gives them guidance. He saves them. He does all of these things for them because he's in a relationship with them, because he's because these are his chosen people. And we also see then this aspect of him choosing and this aspect of covenant in the book of Exodus, God actually makes another covenant with his people too. So what's that covenant called? Does anyone know? The covenant that God makes with his people in Exodus? That's a few different names. A few different names. You could try any of the names. Hal, come on, just, just do it. <laughs> come on, somebody. You got to know this one. Prashant. Yeah, the Mosaic. There we go. Perfect. Okay, you got it. So the Mosaic Covenant, that's, that's what Seth preached on a little while ago. This law and, and how um, the, uh, the law that God gives to his people, the covenant to govern his people. And it's in this giving of the Mosaic law that really Israel is actually formed to be a nation. So they're actually in Exodus becoming not only just a chosen people, a bunch of descendants, but they're getting formed into an actual nation with a law to govern them and to guide them. Okay, so the book of Exodus is about God's sovereign redemption of his chosen people. And then for his own glory is the third point. For his own glory. So God says in chapter 14 that he will get glory over Pharaoh. He says, I'm going to do all this because I want to get glory over Pharaoh. So I'd ask another question. What is it that appears to Israel throughout the book in the in throughout the book of Exodus in the cloud and at Sinai? What appears to Israel there? Does anyone remember? Yeah, well, that's part of it. Yeah, it says there that the glory of the Lord comes, right? The glory of the Lord is in the is in the is in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and at Sinai. The glory of the Lord shows up. So it's all for his own glory. The glory of the Lord comes down to be with the people. Now we haven't gotten there yet. So anyone feel free to answer this. Uh, in chapter 40 at the end when the tabernacle is finally built, what fills up the temp- what fills up the tabernacle? The Shekinah glory. Yeah, the glory of the Lord comes up and fills up the whole temple. And so God actually does all of his sovereign redemptive work all of his choosing of people, all of his loving and choosing of the Israelites for his own glory. Okay? And now I don't need to be um, 
I'm not bearing any news you haven't heard before, but people take issue with this. They take tremendous issue with this fact about God. They think that the fact that God would uh, seek his own glory and try to glorify himself is somehow wrong of him. It's immoral. And so they go and they judge God and they say, God is weird that he would be a jealous God. He's weird that he would be a God who um, would want to glorify his own name like this. But I want to tell you guys something. This was quite a game changer for me when I figured this out in life. When the Lord showed this to me, when he showed me that the fact that he, the fact that he glorifies himself is the most loving thing he could do, right? So we as humans think of glorifying ourselves as a negative thing. If Hal got up here and started to glorify himself, that would be called pride. That would be vain glory. It would be unloving and we would not feel good about that, <laughs> right? But if God is the perfect, or Jesus got up and is the perfect person, the perfect being, and gets up and glorifies themselves, that's love, right? Because you're showing someone the best thing. You're giving someone the best thing. You're, help, you're, you're even allowing Israel to participate in the best thing that there is on earth, anywhere in the whole universe, anywhere, since the beginning of time to the end of time, right? So you're literally allowing these sinful people into eternal love, eternal glory, and that's the most loving thing you can do. And so that was, that chain, that's really a core thing for solid biblical theology. To be able to understand the Bible, you can't really, you can't really miss that and make sense of anything. Because if you miss that, you're going to go through this whole book and be constantly kind of twisting things to fit in how you think God should be. Instead of how he actually is. And then, and then you let him shape you because he's the kind of God who does all of these things for his own glory, right? And he does it because he loves us. So one of the ways in Exodus that God gets glory is through worship, is through calling the Israelites to come and to worship him. So he doesn't just bring them out of Egypt for no reason. You'll remember this too, right? He doesn't just bring them out for fun or just to have a good time. He brings them out in Exodus 7 verse 16. It says, you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve or that they may worship me in the wilderness. So when God takes the people out, he brings them out for a very specific reason and he brings them out to worship him. So underneath this heading of of God doing this for his own glory, we see that he is actually doing this to receive worship and to bring these people out to worship him. And in that worship is where they experience his love. In that worship is where they experience his joy and his goodness and all and all that he has for them. So he's actually done this so that he can dwell with them to dwell with his people. So we'll learn more about this tonight. But the tabernacle that he builds in the midst of the people and that he fills up with his glory and that he leads them around the desert with, that tabernacle literally translated means dwelling place. It's where God can come and lovingly dwell with his people and lovingly be in the midst of his people. So when it comes to worship and glory, thankfully... The fact that God wants to receive glory and he wants to receive worship. Thankfully, he doesn't just leave us to our own devices, right? And that's another thing we see here in the book of Exodus. He doesn't just leave us to our own devices to think of ways that we might glorify the eternal being, the greatest, the great God. He doesn't leave us to our own sense on that. No, he gives very specific laws 
And he gives very specific instructions on how we're supposed to do it. So he reveals his law. It says in, in Exodus, it says he reveals his law with the finger of God. His own finger, he writes the law of God for his people. And that is a benchmark. It's a standard for what's pleasing to God. So he gives that as a standard. And not only that, he also gives them the word of God written down. It says Moses, Moses at one point in Exodus 24 says he wrote down all the words of the Lord. So Moses wrote down everything that he was told by God. He wrote it down so that the people could not just have to like that run blindly trying to please God. However, they thought, no, he gives good, clear instructions for how he should be worshipped and how he should be pleased and how he should be served in the desert. He doesn't just leave us to our own devices. And that again points us back to the fact that these are God's chosen people. Because God's chosen people have been brought out for a very specific purpose. They've been brought out to worship and to serve him. And that worshiping him, that serving him, and that following of his law and of his word and actually abiding by it, it actually changes them. So it's a very amazing thing that happens here. Israel becomes different from the world. So they get drawn out of Egypt and they become different from Egypt. They don't follow Egyptian worship. They don't follow Egyptian laws. No, they follow God's law. And it's the same thing we're going to see later when we go to the last point. That's the same thing that happens to us, right? We get saved out of the world. We get saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. And we go and we live different from the world. We follow God's law. We follow God's word. We don't follow the world's pattern. We don't follow the world's instructions. And so there it is. We know that the book of Exodus is about God's sovereign redemption of his chosen people for his own glory, which all points to the great Exodus in Jesus Christ. So the greater Exodus takes place in Jesus. So the story of Exodus is important not only to Israel's history that Moses is writing, but it's also important for their future. Right. So it's not just it's not just Moses reflecting on things that have happened. It's also Moses saying in the future, these things are going to be important. These things are going to serve as some kind of a standard, some kind of a instructional thing that I've done in history. That's what God is trying to tell uh, his people here. And so this is something to remember. For the sovereign God, the one who knows all things before they come to pass, the one who's in control, the one who uh, chooses his people and is working towards his own glory. For that God, history is prophecy. History is prophecy. So in the, in the time, in time and in history, in the whole blanket of everything that we've seen throughout the whole of time before this moment in Exodus and then everything after, when we look back at it and we see the way that God has been working, the things he's been doing, we should really consider that to be a canvas. We consider it a canvas where God's taken his hand and he said, I'm like this. I act this way. I do these types of things. You understand what I mean? He's saying... He's saying in history, throughout history, and with his work in Exodus here, he's painting a picture for the people, and those people are us. Those people are Israelites after the Exodus. Those people are Christians who will get born in the future. Those people are all people who serve and want to follow God. They get to come to the Word of God. They get to read Exodus, and they get to see that history is prophecy. God is teaching us about who he is while he's at work in history. And he's showing us through the Exodus those types of things. And in case you're wondering if I just made that up, 
First Corinthians 10, 11 says, All these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. So all those things that took place were examples. They're pictures of who God is, what he's like, how we should act, how we should live, what we should be like in light of it. And so the end of the age, when Paul says the end of the age has come upon us, what he's saying is the last phase of history. Right? So we're in this last phase, the same phase that Paul was in. That is after Jesus Christ's return. And so we sit and we wait. But in the meantime, while we wait for Jesus to come back, we look back at this painting. We look back at Exodus and we can see what God is like and we can study it and we can observe it and we can learn from it. And so this aspect of of history being like prophecy is why John Currid says, he said, this is by far the greatest salvific. So salvific just means saving the greatest saving event in the Old Testament. It is monumental in itself, but it is even greater as it foreshadows the heightened redeeming work of Jesus Christ. So in this picture of Exodus, we get to see the heightened redeeming work that's coming in Jesus Christ and that we now can look back on so we can connect the dots a lot better than most people in history, honestly, if because of where we stand in history. And so how do we know that all of this is pointing to the greater Exodus. How do we know that the things that we've studied so far in Exodus are pointing to the greater Exodus? Well, one of the ways that we can know this is by addressing the problem, okay? The problems that need solving, okay? So the problems in scripture are raised because of the narrative, because of the story. We see a bunch of problems come up and then we have to think, well, what is the solution? So at Exodus chapter one, What is the biggest problem in the Bible so far? Can someone answer that question? What's the biggest problem for humans in the Bible so far? At Exodus chapter 1, when it begins. Yeah, the fall. It's the fact that that man has offended the holy God by sinning against him. And everything in nature, on earth, everything has fallen into a state of despair. Everything has fallen into a state of death and misery. That's the biggest problem. And so this actually reveals to us then, um, it helps us to understand, well, what Exodus is talking about. Because when we read Exodus, we read that it's a solution to their slavery, to their captivity, to their misery walking through the desert, to all of these things. But it doesn't fully solve that problem, right? It doesn't fully solve the biggest problem that started at the book at the start of Exodus 1. The contents of Exodus, though they point to the solution, do not actually solve it, do not actually complete the solution that we're looking for. And that's why we look to the greater Exodus. That's why we look to Jesus as the greater fulfillment, the greater uh, redemption of all. That's why we need that. And so in Jesus Christ, who is the leader of the greater Exodus, we don't only see deliverance from slavery and captivity, but we also see sovereign redemption from sin and from the wrath of God. We see true fulfillment of all the things that Exodus is pointing to. And so to conclude the lesson, I'm going to just go through a long list of things and you don't need to worry about trying to write this stuff down, which, by the way, as an aside, like how many of you all take notes in sermons and Sunday schools? Okay, another question. How many of you ever go back to read those? 
Okay, so then my question would be, why are you taking them? And why not just pay better attention to what's being said? But if it helps you concentrate, then that's great. But that's, but that's aside. That's an aside. I also sometimes take notes, but it just is an interesting thing. It's an interesting thought. Sometimes we're like, we have, bi- we have big aspirations to go back and restudy the stuff. But we also need to know that all the stuff is recorded. So if you ever want to listen to it again, you can just, you can just go listen to it. So I'm not, I'm not trying to tell anyone what they should do with their life. They can do whatever they want with their notes. But in any case, this is a long list of things. You're probably not going to be able to keep up if you try to take notes with it. Maybe you haven't been able to this whole time anyways. But um, so I'm just going to show you connections between what we've already gone through up to this point and then what, how this all applies to Jesus Christ. And, and this is where, you know, I'm going to miss a few things for sure, but this is a lot of helpful content. So, so just like God in Exodus has already stated that he would save his chosen people from slavery. Remember that 400 years thing? He's talking to Abraham and he says, this will happen. I will save them after 400 years of captivity. Just like that has taken place in the same way before the beginning of time, the triune God has also already decided to save his chosen people in Jesus Christ. Right? So that already reflects the whole dynamic of how redemption is set up in the Bible. This picture in Exodus of they're going to be in captive. I'm going to save them. And I'm going to tell you ahead of time that I'll do that is a picture of the way that we're all saved in the New Testament, too. Right. God said before the foundation of the earth that I was going to save Tony or Hal or whoever else. Right. And he goes and then he did it. He did it in time and space. He went and actually did that thing. And so this points us to the work of Jesus Christ. So in Jesus Christ, we also see the ultimate and final mediator. We saw about Moses being the mediator. Here we see Jesus Christ. He's ultimate. He's the final mediator, the perfect mediator. He 100% brings us into the presence of God. He speaks to God on our behalf. He speaks to us on God's behalf. He lives in a human body like us to communicate what it's like to live in a, a human body in a godly way. He does all of these things as our perfect mediator. Uh, in Jesus Christ, we also see the glory of God on display. So in Hebrews 1 verse 3, right, it talks about his, the radiance of the glory of God is in Jesus Christ. That's, the, that's what he's doing is for his own glory. In Jesus Christ, we see the law of God perfectly embodied, right? That law that was written with the finger of God, that law that was written down in detail. In, in Jesus, he never once missed even one single point or jot or dot of that whole law. He perfectly embodies every aspect of this law of Exodus. In Jesus Christ, we also see perfect worship given to God, right? So here the Israelites are called out. They're brought into worship. They're brought into God dwelling with them in the tabernacle and spending uh, and coming to wander with them and work and walk with them. But we know pretty, pretty soon and throughout the whole Bible, their worship is not perfect, right? They try. Sometimes they try better than other times. Sometimes they do good and sometimes they do very poorly. Sometimes in just a later book, you're going to see how bad it ends up when they try to do false worship, right? How, how that ends up destroying them and killing some of them and, and how this false worship is destructive. But we know in Jesus Christ, there was perfect worship, always perfect worship. He walked around day after day, night after night, every minute of every day, always perfectly in communion with God, always perfectly fulfilling 
everything he was required to do, always going to the temple and doing the things he was meant to do, always pleasing to God as worship. And it's because of that that our imperfect worship can be seen by God as perfect worship, right? Because we have a perfect worshiping Savior, because he's a perfect mediator, then God, when he looks at us worshiping today out here, He's actually going to see it as pleasing, even though, you know, some of us are going to have distracted thoughts here and there. Some of us are going to have whatever else. Our worship is imperfect, but Jesus, his worship is perfect. Now, in Jesus, we also see the perfect lamb. So in other words, perfect purification for sin. He was innocent. He was the Passover lamb. He was sacrificed for our behalf. He was sacrificed for our sin. On the cross, and he bled for us. And we're going to see again later today when we're going through the tabernacle, there's a, there's a basin there that, that, that was for washing. Well, Jesus, he perfectly purifies us. He perfectly washes us clean with, with his blood. He perfectly cleanses us as the perfect lamb. In Jesus Christ, we also see that God has come the closest to mankind that he has ever come since the fall. So in the, in, in the tabernacle, he wants to dwell close to mankind. He wants to bring heaven down to earth so that, God, so, that, so that man and God can dwell together. And in Jesus Christ, it says, Jesus Christ took on flesh and he tabernacled with us. He dwelt with us. That's what it says in John 1, 14. He dwelt so closely to us, so close that he could associate with us completely. In Jesus Christ, God displays that he is the sovereign power over every single tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. So at the end of the Bible, what are we going to see? We're going to see every single tribe, every nation where someone was worshiping a false god like the Egyptians were. Every single nation is going to be there worshiping him and obeying him. In Jesus Christ, there's final destruction. He's going to destroy all false gods and he's going to destroy all idols. And he's going to destroy and has already on the cross destroyed all the enemies that the people of God would face, all the enemies that God has, all of those have been destroyed. The same is, is pictured for us in Exodus. And he also destroys the greatest enemy of all, which is what? What's the greatest enemy? Yeah, death. Death is the greatest enemy of all. This great enemy that's got each of us captive to the fear of death, he's actually going to destroy that too. And in Jesus Christ, not only do people like the Israelites make their way to the promised land. So in other words, they, they were taken on earth from a bad land into a promised better land, a good land for them. We likewise are journeying to a promised land. But instead of just one on earth, we're going to the new heaven and the new earth because of Jesus Christ. We're going to an exodus that takes us to a whole new place, a whole new heaven and a whole new earth. And in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, his people are called out of lostness and false idolatry and worship into true worship. They're, they're taken apart, separate people. I've already talked about this. They've, they become separated for God's glory. For instance, in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it says that we, as the church, are a chosen people and a royal priesthood and a holy nation. The same language that's used for the Israelites in Exodus, right? Or in uh, the Pentateuch. He... He's the one who makes us this separated and chosen nation. And then finally, Jesus Christ in his life, when he was um, at the Mount of Transfiguration, he says that 
His departure, his departure is being put on display there. His glorification, uh, his glorification is put on display in the Mount of Transfiguration when they become glorified and they're dressed in white and, and, and the beauty of what eternal and heavenly life is like is put on display. There, Jesus says that that is something that's going to happen through his departure, which is the same word in Greek, exodus. I've mentioned this before. That word there, Exodus, is Jesus' departure when he would go and die on the cross for us, right? And so in that, we see the Exodus displayed for us, shows us that we have a glory to look forward to. We actually look forward to not only going to the new heaven and the new earth, but also to be glorified in our bodies, to be glorified in our minds, to be glorified in every respect. And so we're going to this glorious destination being redeemed because God's sovereign redemption out of, of his chosen people for his own glory has taken place in us, right? So that is, in a nutshell, the message of the whole book of Exodus in 40 minutes-ish. <laughs> uh, praise God. Uh, does anybody want to pray to close us?